Welcome to Winning Uglier with Brad Gilbert. What up? Excited finally. About to head to New York to the bubble to actually see some live tennis this weekend. And one of my favorite subjects in tennis at any level is talking about strategy, Buck. And we are going to have on my friend, colleague, somebody I go back, I don't know, 35 years with at least, maybe I'm selling my shirt, even more, Killer Cahill, and we'll really get into some strategy this afternoon. Yeah, I mean, if you know my dad, you probably know Killer Cahill as well from all his work at ESPN, but obviously great career as a player. He made the U.S. Open semifinals in 1988, even more amazing career as a coach, bringing three different players to world number one, Hewitt, Andre, and Simona Halep. So the guy's resume in tennis is right up there with the best of them. So that was a really good chat, explored a lot of different parts of of strategy, breaking down different things that you work on based on the player that you're coaching, kind of how you approach coming back, you know, when you're down and, and also talking about scouting. So I think a lot of things good takeaways for players of all levels to be able to work on. Just hearing that, I coached three guys, you know, first name A. Mm-hmm. He's taken three players to number one, two guys under six feet tall, and Simona five six. So what does he do his best work with like shorter players? <laughs> I, should, I should like, that should be one of my questions. Under six foot thread? Yeah. yeah I don't know. Maybe. Maybe there's something to it. Maybe not. Maybe they're all just great players, regardless of height. But okay, enjoy the interview. Oh, and uh, please ignore a couple cell phone dings that might have gotten in there. This is a home studio operation, so doing our best. What up, killer? BG, how are you? I'm good, buddy. No double duty for you this year at the Open. Will that be less stressful? Or all of a sudden, you're kind of keeping your eye on the draw, thinking, hmm, might have been some opportunity here. Uh, Maybe a little bit of the latter there, to be completely honest, BG. No question. Uh, I think you'll keep me on my toes as much as anybody. So keeping you in line in the commentary booth is going to be a big job in itself. But yeah, for sure, you, you play tennis to play the Grand Slams, obviously. Simona missing the Grand Slam. Uh, it's completely understandable for anybody to make a decision now as to whether they wish to come across to New York or wish to stay home. I certainly uh, admire and respect anyone's decision for that. But when you look at the Grand Slam and everybody's playing, and I think the efforts that the US Open is going to, and if the draw opens up a little bit, knowing that the US Open is a tournament that she's actually struggled in the last couple of years, there might be a few opportunities there. Uh, There might be a little bit of that anxiousness you get in the stomach as the tournament goes along, Uh, but it's okay. She'll practice hard. She'll work hard over the next three or four weeks and we'll be set to go for Rome and the French Open. Killer, today's topic, strategy, one of my favorite things to talk about. Can you remember a match you coached or played in where a strategy really stood out to you and made a huge difference? You know, one of the great things, BG, and you know this very well, is working with the WTA players at the moment, that we have an opportunity to change some strategy as the match is going along. So we get a chance once a set to walk out, and if something's not working when you send a player onto the court, 
then you can have direct input to changing that strategy. And I think that's a great thing from a coaching perspective because as you and I know for pretty much our whole careers working with male players is you can do as much hard work as you want before the match starts. But once the match starts, it's up to the player to problem solve and find ways to turn matches around. And from a coaching point of view, we're limited as to what input we can have. So with the WTA, it's been great. I think the biggest one for me, BG, was not so much a strategy that we'd worked on, but we'd worked on it for about two years for Simona is transition to the net. and playing against Sloane Stevens in the French Open final. She was outplayed for a set and a bit. She was down 6-4 and Sloane was playing incredibly well. She was down a break two love in the second set. And for those two or three years beforehand, as much as I could in practices, I'm trying to get Simona to take advantage of great shots that she hit from the back of the court. So any opportunity she had to, to move to the net, to take time away from an opponent, to come to the net, hit a swing volley, hit a normal volley, hit, use the overhead. Any chance you get, even if you don't win that point, is going to put compound pressure on your opponent. But the reality of getting her to come to the net wasn't easy. And down 6-4, down 2-love in the second set, Simona came to the net four times in that next game at 2-love and put away four swinging volleys. And that was a massive change in the momentum of that match. And as we all know, uh, she got back into that second set. She won the second set and she ran away with the match in the third set. I promise you, had she not come forward at two love to put away those shots, there's a good chance that Sloan would have steamrolled all over her. So that was two years in the making from a strategy point of view. And it was great to see Simona do that in such a big match. That's persistent. of these stories. No, that's persistence paying off. I've got one for you. Ever have anything like this happen? Andre had a little bit of trouble with the little cat, Kuchera. Mm -hmm. And he'd beaten him in a couple of majors. He's getting ready to play him in Lyon. And, you know, he's getting ready for me to really give him all this, you know, in-depth strategy. And I said, Andre, hit the ball straight down the middle with no pace. Let's see what the guy's going to do, because this guy always can run everything down. Oh, my God, I would he, love to have seen his face when you told him. I don't know. He's looking at me. And are you kidding? And I, and I said, no. I said, Andre, hit the ball straight down the middle, no pace. He goes, I don't play like you. I'm just, let's see what happens. Had he ever done that before? Never. Never told him that before. Goes out. 11 minutes later, 5-0. Kuchera's just hitting the ball everywhere but onto the court. So Andre he's winning 5-0. 5-0, 11 minutes. Andre crosses side to me, and you know what he says? This is bullshit. <laughs> I can't believe this is working. And the next thing you know, he starts ripping the ball. The guy start, wins four of the next five games. I do a little third base coaching. I'm saying, just hit the ball down the middle. This guy will fall apart. But you've never, honestly, Darren, seen anybody less satisfied with beating somebody it was like one and three it was a piece of cake by hitting it down the middle and i said you know what it's just hey listen i tried a thousand times to get him to move back on pete sir never you took your your you said two years in the making yeah. to get simona to do it I, mine was eight years and that one never worked but i was most satisfied with telling him go right down the middle so you ever have anything like that happen you give yeah, me something well Actually, we did in Canada in 2005. So Andre was a 35-year-old. And you're right. I, he told me that story. 
about playing uh, Kuchera and he told me what the instructions you get. And he was laughing, telling me the story. And, and coincidentally, he had to play Gasquet in a match on clay and Gasquet worried him because Gasquet could hit unbelievable angles with the backhand. And Andre, as we know, was a really efficient mover, but not a fast mover. So he needed to have a feel for where the ball was going. So if Gasquet would hit that, you'd stretch him to the backhand and he'd hit that short-angled cross-court backhand and it opened up some court for him to zip that backhand down the line. That would hurt Andre a lot. So I said, why don't you do what Brad told you to do against Kachera? Dump every ball down the middle of the court, make Gasquet come for you because the guy likes to sink back three or four steps behind the baseline. He wants the game to come to him, and then he's going to hurt you with one shot out of nowhere. So let's do a little BG winning ugly tennis, and let's just dump the ball down the middle of the court and let Gasquet come to you, and let's see how he likes that. He beat Gasquet in 48 minutes, two and two on clay, doing exactly the same thing. And one other time, a little bit different, I told him to go the other way, is we know this as tennis players, is that if you're playing a big server, if you're playing not so much Krychek, but maybe a Rosetsky, a little bit with the guys against John Isner when they play him now, is that you work so hard to get that return of serve back into play is once you get that return back into the play, you don't want to miss. You actually bring the level of your game down a little bit and you play a bit safe because you feel like, okay, I finally got the return back in. Just don't give him a free point. And the same goes when you're serving is that you take a little pace off that first serve because you don't want him to chip and charge and come in on the second serve. Andre had to play Rosetsky, and he always struggled to play against Rosetsky. And I went back and watched some of the tapes of him playing Rosetsky, and he was playing at about 60% of what Andre normally does. I mean, from the baseline. So when Andre would normally take a ball and rip it cross court, open up the court, take the back end down the line, uh, step inside the court, take away time, he wasn't doing any of that because he was so careful from the back of the court about not missing and getting into these rallies. And I told him, what you're actually doing is you're bringing of the level of your game down so much that a guy like Rosetsky can actually hang with you from the back of the court. So he's got the advantage on the serve, and now you're bringing your level of your game down when you get into these baseline rallies where Greg thinks he can rally with you. Got to stop that. Take it away. Bring the heat. Bring your big power tennis from the back of the court. And, okay, you might miss a couple. That's fine. You might have to play a little more careful on a 30-all point, but the first two points of every single game Go out there and try and ace him. Go out there and crack your backhand and try to hit a couple of winners. And he beat Greg one-on-one in Canada playing his level of tennis and not playing a careful tennis because we fall into that trap when we play the big servers all the time. And that was a bit of an eye-opening experience for, for double-A. Well, what up, killer? Buck here. Yeah, I love that Andre story. Hey, Buck. Uh, I want to do talk a little bit more about a match where you guys both coached against each other and maybe thought it'd be a little bit fun to break down, especially since it is actually the traditional Cincinnati week this week. Yeah. Breaking down the... Do you know what our career record is? Yeah, we looked this head one Head-to-head head coaching? Oh, you've done the numbers, haven't you? I, yeah. I have. So do, do you know what the, 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 our career head-to-head head is? Uh, uh, no, but <laughs> give it to me. Uh, <laughs> what is it? Actually, you're, you're very even, Stephen. 3-3. Three, three. Oh, is it really? Because I, I know that uh, the very first week, I believe, that you were coaching Roddick, you whacked Andre in the semis of Queens. And that was the week, I yep. think, that Andre went to number one in the world, the round before. He won a big match oh, the round it? before. Didn't match that. points, I think. And Andy came through and won that tournament, correct? Yeah, so we did two when you were coaching 
Andre against Andy, and we did, I believe, four Hewitt versus yeah. Andre, yeah. and those were two two. Yeah, both were split. But Buck's got a good match. Yeah. He wants anyways, to Cincy 2004 semis. You're coaching Andre. My dad's coaching Roddick. Yeah. I yeah. was there as well, and definitely one of the most unbelievable atmospheres for a match that I can ever recall being at. But I just wanted was curious from a strategy standpoint. Yep. What were your, what was your guys' game plans uh, going into the match? So, Andre actually played Roddick uh, the, for the first time when I was coaching him in 2002 in San Jose, and he was pretty confident against Andy at that stage. Andy was up and coming wasn't quite as accomplished or rounded as he was later in his career. And he felt like he could get to his backhand pretty comfortably. And what he would do is he would actually play the forehand pretty early in the point to open up the backhand side. But Brad had been with him for a while. He lost to him at Queens uh, a little while before that. This particular match for me, I know Andre won the the match. I think it was 7-5 in the third set. 7-6 in the third, yeah. Only, Only one break for the match. Yeah. One of the best matches I've ever seen. Win or lose. Even had Andre lost that match, I would have clearly said that was one of the best matches I had ever seen because of the fact that every point felt so big. Even a 15 love felt big. And one of the the strategy points on that match was trying to find a way to get to Andy's backhand. Because if you could get to his backhand, then you felt like you could then start to open up to his forehand on your terms, not on Andy's terms but he couldn't get to the back end. <laughs> and as big as Andre played from the back of the court, he just felt Andy was playing BG-style tennis. It was if the rally went more than three or four shots, Andy pulled a trigger and finished mm-hmm. the point. So there was no rhythm for Andre on his side of the court. And he was using his feet so effectively to close that backhand side of the court. And every time he ran around a backhand and hit a forehand, Andre was moving back because he was clubber-langing that forehand. And then, as we know, Andy wins so many free points off that first serve. Every time you get a second serve to try to get back into the point or or to start a rally, Andy had this massive kick serve that would get outside of the pocket of Andre. So he had a lot of trouble returning that second serve as well. So the opportunities for Andre were so few and far between. But Andre was playing unbelievable tennis as well when he got into the point. And as you know, Brad, Andre would rarely talk to the coach during the match. So he would come to the back of the court. He always had his eyes down. He would rarely look up and look for either advice or to start a conversation. Every now and then he'd look for props, you know, if he'd do something great for a smile or whatnot. But halfway through that match, I think it was early in the third set, he walked to the back of the court. You and I are on opposite ends and we're both sitting pretty close to the fence. He walked to the back of the court and he looked at me and said, boy, this is some match, huh? Like <laughs> even, even he in the middle of that match, was taken by the quality of the match. And, and that's what it was like from a point of being a spectator, you and I being coaches, or even for Andy and Andre to be players in that match. There was incredible respect for the quality of tennis. Did you oh, it was an electric match. Um, I told Andy going in to keep the ball out of the middle of the court at all costs, because if you kept the ball near the central part of the court. That's the kind of point where Andre would take control and then he wouldn't be able to get back out of the point. I also told him to stay out of patterns, like backhand to backhand cross or forehand to forehand. And when you drop back on your return, everything was about trying to keep the ball out of the middle. And if you can stretch Andre to the forehand, 
then maybe you could find space to the backhand. So, and unlike an Andre, with with Andy, I only had about 30 seconds because he didn't like to talk too long, yeah. you know, and I had to be really quick. But I'll still never forget early in the third set breaker, that overhead smash from the baseline. Andre hit, Roddick went, yep. And then next thing you know, it was like 7-2 breaker in the third. It's not yeah, like I forgot yeah. it. Where you really improved, Andy, and where I think early in his career where he was a little bit susceptible was you could serve his forehand. And especially on the juice court, the first court, if you and Andre had a great swinging serve out wide on the juice court. And if he used that serve, Andy would either give you a short return, he'd hit it a little bit too spinny. Uh, that, that was an opportunity for Andre to get on top of the point. But I remember that match, he wasn't making progress on that swinging serve to the forehand. And that hurt Andre because normally he'd get off to a quick 15 love or a 30-15. You, you find a way to win a quick point. But you worked an enormous amount on Andy's return of serve, especially on that forehand, because even though the backhand was the weaker side, his backhand return was pretty solid, wasn't it? Yeah, he was actually, you know, his forehand ground stroke was way better than his backhand, but his backhand return was better than his forehand. And I moved him back about five, six feet to give him a little more time. Yeah, I was going to say that's one of the first things a few episodes ago about making small changes to, to your game. He shared a story about changing Roddick's return position. Yeah, he used to stay in the same position as Andre, but he didn't have the hand speed. So I did move him back to give him a little more chance to switch between a backhand and forehand grip. That's great. Great. It's great coaching. All this, uh, this talk, too, does have me thinking about like what you were saying earlier. Like, What if there was on-court coaching in men's tennis and how much you know, your matches would I'm change? I'm hoping you know? it's coming. Okay, let's get to your playing days. What was your approach for turning around a match when you were down? My coach, Shivington, used to tell me, if you lose a set 6-1, never lose the second set the same way. So literally, I, I was quick to throwing out the playbook and changing my game if I was down. Yeah, for sure. It kind of depends who you're playing as well, doesn't it? So for me, it wasn't so much about, and you were a much better player than I was. And I needed, if I was playing a top 10 player, I needed a little bit of help from that top 10 player to let me in. So the one thing you could guarantee for me was that I was going to give a thousand percent for every match. And if I got blown out in the first set, I felt those first two games of the second set were an opportunity for me. I, I didn't take that as a negative thing that I just lost a set 6-1. I'm thinking, all right, I have a chance now. They might be a little relaxed with how easy this is going to be. I have a chance to get off to a fast start in this second set, and I can get a sneaky break here. So I was actually fired up and pumped up to play those first two games. And you're exactly right. You can't go down in that second set playing the same style. So if I was a little bit of a serve and volley player, if that wasn't working in the first set, then I'd look to be a serve, stay back, and take the first ball and come in. Immediately change it. And I wouldn't do that in the 5-1 game or the 4-1 game because I wouldn't want to give my opponent a chance to see what I was about to do in the second set. I would keep playing that first set, lose that first set, then surprise my opponent early in the second set to see if I could get that quick break. And if you get that quick break, you never know what's going to happen. You can work your way back into the match. I can't believe how positive you would be when you're 6-1 down. I once You're a little was bit more negative to me, right? You, you would yeah. talk out loud. I was once down. Do you ever have anything like this happen? I was playing at Wimbledon against Christian Bergstrom. I was playing so bad. I was down 6-1, 1-0. 
And I went to go whinge about a call that was clearly in just to, just to stall. <laughs> and I go up to the umpire, Bruno Rabot. And the first thing he said to me, he goes, I can't believe how bad you're playing today. <laughs> I, he, I know he'd probably get in trouble today. And it was like, and I was like, I started to laugh. And then I actually started to loosen up. And then all of a sudden made me start to think a little bit. I started to serve and stay back. I ended up turning around okay. that match in four sets. And it's you amazing. know what? Sometimes it can be sensing some nervousness from your opponent, right, as well. So the biggest turnaround I ever had was in Los Angeles. I was playing Christo Van Rensburg, and I was down 6-1, 4-1, double break, 40-15 on his serve. And, and Christo was a bit of a roller coaster player. He can play incredibly well, and, and some days he'd have a lot of trouble with the serve. And at 40-15, he went double fault, 40-30, double fault. And it's like a little light bulb goes, da, da, da. And a little help from your opponent, and you get yourself back into the match. And Christo tightened up. I loosened up, and I turned that match around and won it. So it was the biggest turnaround match I had, uh, more so from a confidence point of view than it was from a strategic point of view. How weird is that? You just said that, and I still have this. I mean, I want to punch myself. Same term at LA, semifinals. 6-1, 5-2, 40 love against Crickstein. Oh, my God. On, on his right Good friend. And, and then 5-3 serving, 40 love. I blew eight match points, lost the match in 1989. And then Crick came back and then 6-1, uh, 4-1 in the final against Chang. But I still, like, he and then... He, he'll still bring it up. Like, oh, yeah. I never was, was in like, trouble. How many years have uh, we talked about that for? Oh, yeah. Didn't you break, like, the net strap in that? Yeah, I lost too? the second set. I got so pissed. <laughs> I smashed the net. The thing broke. It took 15 minutes to fix. So not only did I blow eight match points, I also got fined, like, 2,500 for net abuse. All right. So, so walk us through that. What happened on those match points? Did you change your tactics? Did you get I let one go. I came in, up? like, on... On the 6-1, I came in on, on a good approach, and I probably could have played a backhand volley. I should have, and I let it go. He had a couple of good shots. I choked a few. But, you know, you know, sometimes you have a match, literally, like everything is in balance. Everything is going your way. And then all of a sudden, that's the, great, the beauty of tennis at any level. Club players... You can't just run out the match. You can't, you know, you got to win it. And he actually, like, locked down. He didn't give me anything. He didn't give me any points. And you know what? A couple of them I wish I could have back, but that's the beauty of it. But amazingly, I went on to win San Francisco the next week, so I didn't let it beat me up. There you go. Great, great. You're pretty good at the, uh, the short-term memory loss, at least, even though I'd say that was a lesson in not to – not how to compose yourself oh, yeah, after no, you get I, down. I, I snapped. A lot <laughs> of beers after that one. Uh, that would have been about sure. eight beers. Eight beers deep. So switching gears a little bit, I know I know you work a lot with uh, with PlaySight Killer, and I yeah. want to talk about utilizing analytics and, and yeah. seeing it, how that comes into play uh, in terms of your uh, your strategy implications. Yeah, so we're really fortunate these days that we have available to us a lot more analytics than we did back in the old days. And we have, through Hawkeye, uh, opportunities to go back and find patterns in play to isolate certain techniques to try to work on that, to work on different opponents on different surfaces and see what they rely on in the big moments. Mm. But I've got to be honest, PlaySight is great for me because... I'm still old school as far as uh, preparing for matches is that going back to the video, 
is still the best way to prepare totally. for a match. So you can look at the numbers, you can look at the diagrams, you can look at the shots and, and the, the, the arrows pointing certain directions. That's all fine and good. But until you see how much spin is on the ball, how fast they're hitting the ball, where they're placing themselves on the court, you don't get a real sense for how the match is opening up. So going back to the video is still the best way to prepare for a tennis match. And the, the thing, the trick to coaching is how much, and Brad just spoke about this, is how much do you give your player? Andy Roddick liked about 30 seconds. Andre liked about 30 minutes. Simona's definitely on the shorter side, on that side of things. So if you have five or six minutes to talk to your player about strategy before the match, how are you going to use that five or six minutes? And that's the great thing about Brad is that I, I reckon he knows his player is coaching through his eyes better than anyone and knows what message to get across in those five or six minutes. And quite often with Simona is that I'll speak the words, but video to her leaves a much stronger impression than my words do. So quite often I'll say, all right, just take a look at this. There's five or six points here I want you to look at from your opponent. Lean on this on the big points. Expect this type of serve on the big points. Let's take a look at the video. And then I show her two or three minutes of video uh, and, and it leaves her a stronger impression in her head when she goes out and she feels like she can see it before, before she actually feels it. So coaching for me, the analytics is great. Uh, what we have available is terrific, but I'm still pretty old school. I'll have a quick look at all that stuff, but I still go back to the video to do right, yeah, it. it. It makes sense as like a supplementary tool and exactly. especially like if you have someone that's a more visual learner, like Simona, to, to have that extra, you know, footage to back it up. But yeah, I totally, right. totally know what you mean. I, yeah. I'm even more old school than you. You know, I, I like to scout the opponent, but I want to tell you back a, a little failure that, you know, probably, you know, still to this day, you know, I'm agitated with myself and I didn't understand the situation better. So briefly in, 1996, I started coaching Mary Pierce along with coaching Andre. So first tournament together, she's in the final in Amelia Island. So I start giving her the strategy of playing this girl named Spiraya. Uh, yeah, yeah. There we go. <laughs> and I start going over real quickly the game plan. And literally after about 12 seconds, it was a panic. And she was, I don't want to know that. I said, no, she can't hit over a backhand. She can't go down the line. She only can serve wide on big points. And I'm not even looking on video. I'm just telling her about a couple of matches I scouted. And I said, listen, you, and she likes to camp in the backhand side of the court. As soon as you have the opportunity, take the backhand down the line, you open up the point. And then literally she slammed on the brakes and like, you, you're just inundating me. And then, and then so you're giving her too much information. Yeah, and then literally she went out and got routed. Uh -huh. Everything I told her, it just she said, and so. But how quickly that, did you know this within the match that you'd given her too much info? A couple of games into it, you knew it was trouble. I knew about three minutes and twenty three seconds in <laughs> that this was going to be problematic, and there wasn't coaching then, and it's like, and. At my coaching experience then was with Andre, and he yeah. could handle all this, and I could with my coach, but. To my fault, I didn't make the adjustment from Mary. And as it turned out, you know, we stopped about three months later because I didn't feel like I could help her properly because she didn't want information yeah. about her opponent. And actually, I feel like later on, it made me a better coach that like, okay, you got to understand your player better. But at that time, I didn't understand 
you know, how to temper my communication. And it still bothers me. Every time I see her now, I give her a hug and say, I wish I could have changed that. But man, I, I only gave her two, three bullet points, but I so could have gone the, for a week and a half. The coaching, right, is to coach through players' eyes and not coach through your eyes because we all see the game a little bit differently. I have this little story that I tell every now and then is that, so I've had the opportunity to coach three great players in, in Leighton Hewitt, Andre and Simona Hallop. If I had, and I can use you in this as well, if if I had a short forehand, a ball that lands on the service line in the middle of the court to me, to me it was 100% out, out of 100 that I'm going to take that forehand inside out, come to the net and say, pass me if you can. <laughs> that was the shot I was looking for. And I knew if I hit a good inside out forehand, I'm probably going to win that point seven or eight times out of 10. And if you're going to Vegas winning seven or eight times out of 10, that's pretty good odds. So that's there was no indecision for me. If you gave that very same shot, that very same ball to Leighton Hewitt, and he's much faster than me, he's going to get up to the ball a little bit quicker than me, take the ball on the rise. He's going to hit that ball a little left to right, inside out. He's so fast that he's going to wait to see if his opponent's going to get two hands on that racket to play an aggressive passing shot or to hit a defensive slice. And he's going to go, oh, no, I'm going back to the baseline if you're getting two hands on that racket. But if you hit a defensive ball, I'm going to come in and hit a swing volley. So he's so fast, he's assessing as that ball's going off his racket. You give that to Andre, same shot. Andre gets up to the ball and goes, hmm, I could hit a winner here, no problem. But I'm not going to do that because I'm going to hit this so you can just get to it. And you're going to hit a defensive ball back to me short. And then I'm going to run you to the forehand court. I'm going to run you to the backhand court, to the forehand court, to the backhand court, to the forehand court. And I'm going to rip your legs out. And then I'm going to get the ball and I'm going to be back on the line within five seconds and I'm going to quick serve you. And I'm going to win the next four points because of this one point. That's kind of how he thinks. And if I give the same ball to Simona, Simona's going to go, oh, I've got to hit the shit out of this, this ball because this is my best chance to win the point. And I'll go, Simona, slow down. You don't have to hit the ball that big. Just take a little pace off that ball and then do what Leighton would do. Think about coming to the net and transitioning forward to take advantage of a great situation. Darren, why would I want to come to the net? Because there's nothing good that can happen for me up there. What happens if they get the ball below the height of the net? Then I've got to volley up. And what happens if they pass me? I, I lose the point. I'm in control of the point. Now I lose the point. I'm better off to take that forehand as hard as I can and hit the winner. So that's one easy shot looked at four different ways by four different players. So that goes to your point, BG, is that you can never coach a person really effectively until you understand what's going through their head and how they're trying to assess and how they see themselves as tennis players. And that's why you've got to coach through the player's eyes and not through your eyes. I'd actually like to think that, that you know, the strength of my coaching is I've always taken my game out yeah. because it, it's so easy to think about what you would do, but it doesn't matter. Now, something I, you know, I want to ask you about, about scouting. And one player that when I would scout and then give him information about the match, I, this was a unique experience. Every time I would start going through scouting and the game plan, I would get the question, why? Or how did I come to that decision? Or how do you know that this will work? Is Andy Murray? Yes. <laughs> how did you know that? I spent a little time with him, so I know what's coming. So it, it, it was frustrating in that, I would always say, like, why would I tell you something that I, why would I give you the wrong information? But 
for some reason, he had such a high tennis IQ and a high brain. Everything naturally was the second guess. And so it was, you know, I go back in my room and it's like, start pacing. It's like, listen, I've scouted your guy. I think this is, you know, but then he'd start to question me and make me start to think about, you know, my game plan that I would come up with him. But it was a unique experience having something like that. But there's a, there's a lot of good in that as well, right? Because you want a tennis player to try to continue to try to improve themselves. And, and the good tennis players will want to know why. They'll ask questions. And if you say, listen, I shorten that backswing a little bit because your swing's a little bit too big, uh, shorten it up, and then push through the line of the ball and get your power from there, well, why, why would I do that? You know, that doesn't feel comfortable for me. Then you can start to coach. Then you work through the process of explaining the, the technique and what you're trying to accomplish. And that's where good coaching comes from. So I think Andy having that why thing in his game, I think is a great thing. And it's why he's pushed himself to be such a great champion is because he's improved himself as a player because you're right, he's got a great tennis IQ and he wants to learn and to get better. There's the other side of that where you can probably complicate it a little bit too much at times. And I think Andy over... Uh, the course of his career has been guilty of that a little bit where he's made it much more difficult than it's needed to be. And that's when you see the frustration come out when he's on the court as well. Yeah. I've been on the business end of getting some business on the court. <laughs> a little frustration. You love him, right? I love him. I, I, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's one of I got to be honest. I, I like every challenge. Yeah. Whether or not, like, you know, I'm working with a 4-0 club player. My whole goal, anybody that you're working with, is to try to make them better. And not compare them to anybody else. So that's the whole goal for me in coaching somebody is to make them as good as they can for for what they can be. Come on, this is the greatest thing about you, BG, is that you and I are on the phone earlier today and you spent a couple of hours on the court with Gavin Rostow, the, the lead I've, Yeah, I've had like seven sessions yeah. with him working and on that forehand. We just played were, doubles you, this morning. And you were as pumped up about working with Gavin as you are about working with a pro player in the top 10 and trying to help him Get through those moments where he becomes more confident on the forehand or the backhand or whatever it may be. But you take every single opportunity when you get onto the court because you love it, right? You, you love the experience. You love the challenge. It doesn't matter if it's a professional player or if it's a club player. To you, it's just improving someone's game. I've been frustrated, you know, because I haven't been making the shot better. And so I take it. So, like, doesn't matter if it's a junior club player. It's it's all about trying to help them get better. Now, Buck's got a good one for you here. Well, yeah, I, you, you got me thinking about how, in general, it is a good sign when players are asking why and, and you know wanting to know more about you know what you're telling them to do as a coach. And, and I have gotten to work with some some junior tennis players as well, especially a good amount this summer. And I've always, especially with younger kids, I always think it's a good sign when they're asking why, when they want to you know learn more. And they want to find ways to kind of, you know, expand their game. But uh, obviously, it's it's a different dynamic working, uh, you know, with a with a player that you're coaching that you're not related to, as opposed to working with your own kids. And obviously, we know all about that. And um, your son Benjamin and your daughter Talia yeah. play. I know Benjamin is just heading off to uh, to start college now at, at Furman, uh, correct? Right. So just wanted to know um, sort of the differences, you know, in terms of hitting with your kids, coaching your kids, and then how you approach that compared to your players. Yeah. <laughs> Where do we start? <laughs> you guys yeah. have been through it's, it's not easy. And not I think easy. first and foremost, I, I'm a dad, 
first. And if I can, he's always had his own coach when he was living here in Las Vegas. He already had his own coach here in Vegas. When we went back to Adelaide, he had his coach back in Adelaide, Ben Milner, who looked after him for years. I would ask some questions. If I would get some questions back, then we could get into it. But if I was getting, yes, no, dad, I've got it handled. <laughs> I wasn't pushing any harder to try to, uh, to try to. Uh, how, how come you didn't get that memo? Dad? I didn't get that memo. <laughs> I mean, and, and I listen, trial by error. Like I feel like I should have done better, but I did worse, you know, because I, I was a little too meddlesome with him. No, no it's not the case. Uh, look where Buck is now. He's working at ESPN. He's turned out incredibly well. It's, uh, it's about parenting first and foremost. And sure. in the end, I think that fire burns within the athlete as well because I had, I had the same with my dad back in South Australia. So my dad, as you guys know, was is a Hall of Famer Australian rules football player. Uh, a little bit that same relationship when I grew up, when I was playing football and also tennis. He would ask me questions about tennis and I was kind of like, all right, what would you know about tennis? You know, you're a footballer. <laughs> what would you know about tennis? He knew a lot about coaching. And just yeah, exactly. Because, because he didn't know about tennis didn't mean he couldn't give me some great advice. So he learned to sign up, pick his moments when to give me some great advice. And those moments have really stayed with me. They really have. And I think the fire burns inside the athlete. So it's our job as parents to try to keep flaming that fire as much as we can and to make sure that the when when at least when my kid steps onto the court, when Benjamin goes onto the court, he's happy, he's enjoying the sport, he's around people that make it fun for him. Uh, we've chosen a university with J.J. Whitlinger, who's his coach across in Furman, who's an unbelievable guy. He's got some good kids around him. He's got some beautiful facilities. He's been there a week, and uh, we were there 24 hours. He's like, Dad, you can go home now. I'm all good. So it's a, it's a perfect place for him, and I know he'll really flourish in an environment like that. So that's what we're looking for as parents, is to, to do as well as we can to give them the opportunity to go get it themselves, not push so them towards it. My dad would always tell me two things, you know, because he, he was always at practice, always around, but he would always just, because he, he wasn't unlike Andre's dad. He didn't know anything about grips. He didn't know anything, yeah. but he would tell me, don't miss and win the last point. Let's hear four <laughs> valuable words, game, set, match, Gilbert. That's all he would always say. And it was like, that was it. But like with him, like I, I always felt like, you know, like tennis still, I don't care how much the sport has improved over the last 40, 50, 30 years, whatever it may be, the best two words you can use and we use all the time, stop missing. <laughs> it, it, it Really, it, it's, no. it's we're trying to be aggressive. We're trying to play great tennis. The best thing you can do when things aren't working for you is put the ball in the court. Stop missing. Stop trying to be perfect. Let your opponent actually have to come up with something. You'll be surprised, and I know I'm preaching to the converted but you'll be surprised how much those two words actually work. I wish we could have you on every episode because, I mean, I mean like that's, that's, why I, that's winning uglier in a nutshell. I right tell there. club players, I tell everybody, like, you know, especially club players and juniors, it, it, what wins the match at that level so often is errors. Correct. Big targets keep the ball in play. That was my whole game and then maybe sneak to net. But I think that a lot of people still think that you get two points for a screaming winner. Yeah, correct. And one of the big things about club players as well, and I coach a lot of them and I love my time on the court with them, is they, they want to have weapons from both sides. So I'll coach a club player who's got a really nice forehand and an average backhand, but a backhand they don't miss on. 
but they go and put those two hands on the racket and they rip the backhand saying they want to hit the backhand like Agassi. And I'm saying, okay, you're missing it all the time. Just put the backhand in the court Manage and win the, win the point with the forehand, with the shot that you have confidence in, that you know is a weapon. That's how you win the point. If you can take away all the errors off your worst side, off your backhand, and win points off your strength, you're going to be a much better player than what you are now. And it's the simplest advice you can give a club player. So you eloquently just said what we talked about last week, manage your game. That was me. Manage my backhand, use my forehand. That's something that I preach a lot. Now, and speak I, hated preach. Forehand. I hated that forehand down the line. It used to drive me nuts. <laughs> the best job, right? I still, hey, listen, I told the story last week. I still, he asked me if I ever got in the zone. And I said, I only got in the zone once in my life. And I was shocked. I never, this was like, I've heard, I thought well, I've heard all the stories, but I haven't heard this. I hadn't heard this one. I mean, I wasn't good enough to ever get in the zone, but for some reason, one day, I don't know what the hell happened. I was serving 129. I was hitting aces. I couldn't miss. I beat Andre like in 49 minutes in the semis of San Francisco. And who do I face in the final? You. And I thought because <laughs> I zoned and that. played. <laughs> and I you thought that like, no, but. I, but you know what? Great learning experience. Tomorrow has nothing to do with today. And I took for granted that since I hit the zone today, I must be able to do that again tomorrow. And it obviously didn't happen. Blew my serve. Stay in the match four, five, and a third. You won the tournament. So great learning moment. But let's go to something that we're both passionate about. Yeah. It's been since the 2002 season that the Raiders last made oh. the playoffs. You now live in Vegas. Raiders Stadium is built. Raiders are going to play their first season there. What are your expectations for our beloved Raiders this year? Because our favorite slogan is next year. 11 and 5, BG. We go 11 and 5 this year. I think Coach Gruden has recruited well. It's taken a few years. I think we've got some more offense coming. Uh, been, it's a mile down the road from where I live here yeah, in Vegas. I saw you posted some pictures at the stadium. Yeah, I walked down there. They're doing some training down there. Beautiful facilities. They're pumped up. If you've been seeing on Instagram some of the, the, the drills they've been doing, uh, I've got a really good feeling about the Raiders this year, and I think they're going to go 11-5, and five, and that's good enough to put us in the mix. All right, I, I, I will drop and give you 50 because <laughs> I would be so excited. But, you know, just like tennis and I think about every sport or whatever, the two positions that are the most important in the football field, I worry about the quarterback and the coach. So I'm going to just piggyback on you and say, you know, if they can go 11 and five, I'll, you know, thank you. Like would you, you have know, thought about Tom Brady or you would have taken a pass on Tom. I love Tom Brady. I, I'm not sure that I want to go with a 42, 43-year-old quarterback, but I'm certainly not sold on Carr because he can't extend the play. And I'm not sold yet on Gruden because he doesn't know how when he gets ahead, you know, it's like a tennis player. He, he pulls his foot off the gas. You know, he's the kind of guy that plays not to lose. And like Andy Reid gets ahead, man. He's like, let's keep throwing touchdowns. Let's throw the ball downfield. So I want to see more of that, and then I'll believe. But if you know something, your mouth, the God's ears, 11 and 5, sign me up, buddy. Oh, I don't know anything, VG. I'm just hoping with the recruiters that we have and a little more speed and a little more catching power, it's going to encourage Derek Carr to take a few more chances. And if he does that, 
Mate, I'm happy to see, even if we doesn't come off and we lose a few games by being aggressive and going for it, I'm all good with that. I would rather play that way and lose a few games than to play defensively and just grind out. Tennis strategy, football strategy. Yeah, it's all, it's I look all forward to seeing you in two days and actually talking about some live tennis, breaking it down. Relax. I'll have a couple of beers tonight. See you in a couple of days, buddy. Beauty boys. Cheers. Thanks so much, killer.